So, Mark. Yes? Uh, in this film, one of our main characters, Frederick Krueger, uh, has an unusual home. Uh, that he does. One that may or may not exist in reality. He lives in what appears to be a wet factory. One of my favorite kinds of movie locations. Which I th- I think is supposed to be like the boiler room at the school. But indeed it is know. a wet factory. I've never really been in like that kind of industrial architecture, right? I've been to like a Krispy Kreme where you can see the machines working. And that's about the extent of my factory experience. I... I have done, you know, like, the classic winery and brewery tours, which are probably the closest to factories I've ever been to. Whenever I go on them with my sister now, she points out things like gauges and pipes and things, because now she does work with factories as a engineer. Oh, cool. So she's she, uh, she, uh, she could have been a factory expert to bring on, but I don't think we many should have of had them her on this episode. Drip as much as this one. My grandpa used to tell stories. Uh, he grew up in Chicago about how just like every year the school field trip was going to the slaughterhouses. That's bad. I am much. Ha- I love it. I'm much happier with my school field trips to the zoo or the learning museum, where we got to put on a recreation of the Constitutional Convention. But you never got to see how happy cows became happy hamburgers. No, instead, I got to play George Washington, which was the best role because I was famous and didn't have any lines. Because George Washington wow, you were didn't in talk much. Well, apparently he didn't exert that much authority at the Constitutional Convention, so I sat knowingly in my chair. Yes, but the sun on your chair, was it a rising sun or a setting sun? Yeah, they definitely spent a lot of time talking about that. (laughs) I think I also got to play the judge when we went there the next year and did a courtroom situation. Oh, what was was the trial? I was a big fan of. Uh, Couldn't remember for the life of me. I did get to bang the gavel. Was it the trial of a bunch of suburban parents for their vigilante justice in tracking down and murdering a man? Uh, No, it was not. Um, We will get into that, but I guess we were going to talk more about other dripping factories. Yeah, Mark, what are your favorite weird, wet, and wild factories in movies? Um, So, I have one that is referenced in both a movie and a theme park ride, which is... The factory in Tim Burton's Batman, where a vat Mm, of chemicals turns Jack Nicholson into the Joker. And at Six Flags over Georgia, the Batman ride goes through, like, sewers and pipes and wet factory settings. Except it's not actually wet, it just has speakers making dripping sounds. And that was a great ride that I've ridden a lot, so that wet factory does hold a special place in my heart. I was thinking about the factory from The Terminator, where the final sequence takes place. Another good dripping factory. Yeah, where Linda Hamilton, like, finally incinerates The Terminator. I feel like all the Alien movies, or at least the original three, certainly. I haven't seen Resurrection in a long time. Like, certainly all have dripping factory vibes, even if, like, three is the only one that's actually in a factory. They're very wet movies. I haven't seen them, but I am aware in my... I think of them as wet movies. You haven't seen any of the Alien movies? I watched Alien one time at swim camp, and I saw half of it and got scared, so I stopped. Aw, Mark! 
We should do like Alien Covenant. I think that's the one with the most romance. Uh, the, I mean, uh, that's also the one where Michael Fassbender kisses himself. Oh, okay. I'm interested. I really do want to watch them. <laughs> They're on my list. Uh, movies where people kiss themselves. I always find very funny. Look, yeah, it's great. There's like all of the things that line up for me, but I just, I am also, it's one of those movies that scared me too much as a kid. Like when I watched it way too young. So it's tough to revisit, but I do love Sigourney Weaver. Yeah, she's really good in them. Also, H.R. Giger is such a weird guy. He certainly is. I love him mostly because of, um, do you know Matt Gorley, the comedian slash improviser? Yeah. Uh-huh. Have you heard him do his H.R. Giger character anywhere? He's done it on Comedy I don't Bang know Bang that I have. before, and it is always extremely funny. I mean, frankly, there's just something about a Dutch voice that's funny. I think, isn't he Swiss? I think he's Swiss. I thought he was Dutch. Mostly because I saw his house that is now a museum in Gruyere, Switzerland. I mean, you're probably right. In my head, that was in the Netherlands. Yeah, he's Swiss. You're right. We didn't go in because it was extremely expensive. But boy, did they have a weird sexual aliens outside that door. What? What? I'm shocked. Oh, yes, I know. You know, the other sort of shocking factory that I thought of from movies was a factory that actually switched people's heads so their heads were attached to the wrong bodies, which was very alarming in Star Wars Episode Two: Attack of the Clones. <laughs> Star Wars has some good, like, kind of wet-looking sets. I mean, Jabba's Palace is a great, like, wet place. But nobody in Jabba's Palace has their head taken off and put on another robot. Which leads to everyone's favorite hijinks in the Battle of Geonosis. Really helps keep the tone of that beginning of an epic war solid. Those movies are so baffling. There's still a part of me that thinks we should do Attack of the Clones. I don't know if I can bring myself to watch it again. So that's the argument against it. If you force me to watch it uh, as part of the show, I will. But I will not watch it with you otherwise. <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll accept that. I can live with that. Because I am now thinking about some movies I have put on recently that I don't know how thrilled you are to be watching. I'll watch anything. My bar is much lower. It is. I just... The <laughs> experience of the two of us trying really hard to like Phantom Menace lives very vividly in my brain. Yeah, I think... First of all, that wasn't for the podcast. And so, like, I think watching a bad movie for the podcast gives it additional stimulus because, like, you have an objective. You don't just have to endure the movie. That is true. You do have to, you have to try. You have to pay attention. Yeah. And you can always, like, game it out being like, what are we going to talk about? So, like, there's something else to think about besides just the movie itself. Right. Which is nice. Yeah. So, I don't mind. I mean, we're staring down the barrel of, we got to start talking about Christmas movies and (laughs) figuring out what we're doing there. You were traveling when the Variety Roundup of this year's Hallmark Slate came out, so... Oh, yeah, I... I I don't know if you've... I didn't look through. The only thing I noticed is that one of them seemed particularly creepy, and I don't remember which one. I mean, one of them is about a woman who decides to get in touch with her German roots. Hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Hmm. Yeah. But, no, I think think Never Been Christ should be the one about a woman who falls in love with a man named Chris. Yeah. That's bad. I'm into it. But we'll we'll work on this. We'll bring it to you later, friends. All right. Uh, in the meantime, we should do, we should do this. You know, it's Halloween. Let's talk about 
let's talk about spooky things. All right, let's dive in. Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark, I'm gay, and tomorrow is Halloween. And I'm Will, and I'm a ginger, and tomorrow I'll be a pumpkin. (laughs) And this is an investigative podcast dedicated to examining the very least important issue facing our world. Does Hollywood Halloween romance actually make any sense? What if we did a month of explicitly Halloween movies like we do with Christmas? Like, not horror. They have to be about Halloween. Uh, We could figure that out. There's probably enough. Yeah, but I think they would get less compelling quickly. Like, I just saw A Haunting in Venice, and that is a Halloween movie, and it is dull as rocks. Oh, we would absolutely run out of steam very quickly, but there's at least three Halloween Town movies. That is true. (laughs) There are now two Hocus Pocuses. We've only done one. We can figure that out. We'll talk about that again next year, if we remember. There are like ten movies called Halloween. And we've done two of them. I think we've only done the one. We did Halloween 3, and that's it. Did we not do? I thought we did Halloween. No, we did Friday the 13th. That's it. We just watched Halloween. I don't think we've ever watched or it together. Or I've watched Halloween. I think I've seen Halloween yeah, it's like great. twice now. I love that movie. I just got the 4K. But today, we are not talking about Halloween. We are talking about whether these bags of blood are actually dateable or even likable. It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation. We will dig in and see what's there. And this week, we are looking at the iconic slasher film, Wes Craven's 1984, A Nightmare on Elm Street. This movie rocks. It's so good. I had never seen this before. That is, like, so shocking to me. And I'm so glad you've seen it now. I first watched it on a horror movie marathon day with Nick and Catherine where we were a little buzzed and we watched Halloween, A Nightmare on Elm Street, and Scream all in a row. That sounds great. And it was a great day. I mean, I feel like that is the ranking of my appreciation of the movies. But this one is just like so fun in comparison to a lot of the other slashers coming out at the time. I feel like it's a bit sillier. Is sillier than Halloween without being as sort of like, and I say this lovingly, stupid as Friday the 13th. Right. It's much, the silliness is on purpose in this one. But it still has genuine stakes with characters that you feel in a way that Friday the 13th doesn't really for me. Like those kids really feel like bags of blood just waiting to be popped. Right. I don't remember any character from Friday the 13th. And I think Nancy might be my favorite final girl. She's great. I will say, as somebody who knew very little about this movie besides its iconography, right? Freddy Krueger, going in, like I knew the name Heather Langenkamp was the lead, but I didn't know anything about her. So this movie totally pulled off like the psycho rug pull on me where we're following Tina and I'm just like, makes sense. This is our lead. And so when she died, I was genuinely shocked. Like, Nancy is a pretty small role up until that point. And it totally got me, which was really exciting. And then she just becomes so cool. Yeah. I love Nancy because she is one of, she's not a final girl because she lucked into it. She's kind of the final girl because she's putting effort into it. She is working hard to stop Freddy Krueger. She fights her way to the end of that movie, including like setting goofy little traps. I mean, this is pre-Home Alone, but the hammer swinging down. The sledgehammer attached to the ceiling and the, like, light bulb that explodes. You're never going to get, like, Jason Voorhees going, oof, 
when he gets hit in the stomach with a hammer. And that's something I love about Freddy Krueger. I mean, that's part of what's cool about Freddy too, and Robert Englund's performance is like, and this was explicit, right? Craven putting the movie together was like all the big movie killers had been just these masked menaces, right? Jason and Leatherface and Michael Myers. Those are characters that don't really speak. They are just like a hulking brute and a mask. And this is almost like a comedy performance. Like, he is so delighted by everything that he's doing that he's always got this nasty smile on his face. Robert Englund is this like, kind of like wiry little rat man. It's totally different. It's very different. While and still being menacing. Right, because he is still very creepy. But when they introduce him and he has the, like, long spaghetti arms that never show up again. But it's so, you only need it once. It's so cool. It sticks with you. Right. He is the opposite of the, you know, the cat people uh, villain scarier the less you see him. Where this is a, like, fully, like, you see all of Freddy Krueger. You get all of him, he's on screen, and he's still a very good time, but also scary. And also probably the most evil of all of them. Like, he does not have a sympathetic backstory at all. No sympathetic backstory, and also he delights in it, in a way that those other monsters don't. The others are very matter-of-fact, right? Michael Myers will kill you. He is inescapable. Leatherface feels the same, right? Like, once you cross Leatherface's path, that's the end of it for you. Whereas Freddy is delighting in this. This is a joy for him. It also feels like he doesn't really have to be doing it. He's not compelled in the same way. This is just fun. He's just an evil guy who likes murdering children. He doesn't have any sort yeah. of tragedy in his life. At least that we get in this movie. Yeah. In the original draft of the screenplay, the living Freddy Krueger had also been a child molester. And they don't make that explicit in the movie. There's like a lot of talk about like, yeah, we decided to tone that down. And I'm like, I feel like it still comes through. Yeah, I mean, when he sticks his hand up in the bath with the finger knives. Yeah, and also like the murder of Tina is very like sexual. Yeah, Freddy is evil and deserves to die. And it's good that the nightmare version gets stopped by Nancy. Maybe. I mean, we know. Maybe. It, maybe. We know not because there's like 14 of these movies. But also, like, the vigilante parent murder of all of him, not great. And so weird, like, how matter-of-fact it is. Yeah. I mean, th that there's clearly some... Nancy's uh, mom is just like, as you know, well, I'm telling you, but, like, this guy kept killing people, so a bunch of us parents just got together and said, enough's enough, and we went out and we all killed him. And, and I kept his cops. signature weapon as a souvenir here in the basement. Yeah. Weird. And, you know... Apparently, he didn't go to jail because a lawyer forgot to sign something. I think, like, a warrant wasn't signed correctly. So that's why he was able to get away with it. The parents then, you know, gathered together and murdered him. But his hatred was so intense that he now haunts the dream world. Weird. It's weird. It's weird. It doesn't make sense. And yet, it's very spooky. Yeah, it like, the backstory itself is almost the strangest part of it because i accept the dream logic of like freddy krueger is the boogeyman who haunts your dreams and his nefarious influence lingers with you like that's the thing like the dream logic makes sense to me it's the vigilante parents that are the ones that get me to be like what's going on here i didn't really need freddy krueger to be a real person 
No, if Freddy Krueger was just the boogeyman who lived in your dreams, I still think the movie would have been as understandable and good. Yeah, because it's not like having that information even really helps them defeat him. No, because he exists in a dream world, so you eventually have to use dream logic against him. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, this movie rocks. I'm so thrilled to see it. I watched it, like, Friday night, threw it on late. It was, like, a perfect 90 minutes. Just an, an absolute blast. Like, watching all the cool special effects. Like, a person, like, pushing their way through a wall that bends around them is an effect that always works for me, and it's done best here. Where they just, like, built a wall out of spandex so that he could push against it. Right. Like, all of his creepy ways of showing up land in this movie. Pushing through the wall. The shadowy figure in the background with the spaghetti arms. Like, the ways you don't see him are also good. Or even just, like, the ways that people are attacked. And, like, for me, part of what's fun about this movie is also, like, thinking about and then learning about how they did those things. So, like, the whole bathtub sequence is so cool and, like... When you see her under the water and it looks like, like, get out. Like, the sunken place, almost. But, like, for that, they built a bathroom set on top of a swimming pool. And they had a removable bottom to the bathtub. So that they could, like, when it pulls out, she's really sinking through the tub into a swimming pool. Wait, that's that's so so cool. cool. That's so cool. And, like, for the scene where, I think it's Johnny Depp, like, gets eaten through the bed. And then it just, like, vomits blood all over the place. For that, they, like had a set that could rotate. They used it for Tina's death too. But for the the blood geyser, what they did was they just flipped the set upside down and just put a bucket over top and dumped it so just gravity would do it and they could reverse the shot. Oh, that's so smart. Yeah. Because you could even do that in miniature, probably. I don't know if they did, but... They did not. They did it in full size. The only one that doesn't really work... For me, is the burned corpse of the mom sinking into the bed with the, like, Beetlejuice lightning at the end. Oh, I, st- I like that. I liked it. It was just- the- I like that stuff. I just feel like it was the one where the body looked the most just like a dummy. But I think it's also the only body we see clearly because Tina is, like, thrown around the room and then Glenn explodes. And then I guess Rod, it's easier to fake- a hanging that like a, a burned corpse sinking into a bed. Not that many people die in this movie. No, it's just a couple. I mean, look, they're all on the same street. So that's striking. Yeah. And one of them is like a person who apparently like a teenager who apparently hangs himself in jail. So like, that's pretty shocking stuff. Yeah. I was just thinking through. I was just like, oh, wow. There's not that like the body count of this one is pretty low. And that's not like, but that's because like they all thing, have to know each other. Yeah. This is the most, like, tight-knit community one, I think. Because Halloween has that, but Halloween narrows down to, like, you don't get as much relationship between anyone except for Jamie Lee Curtis and Michael Myers. Yeah, Halloween also has the weird thing of, like, it feels like there is a world, right? Because, like, Lori is babysitting. One of her friends is babysitting that night. There's these indications of a larger world, but the streets are always empty, But that's just because they couldn't afford to pay any background actors. Right. This one, you get a few mob scenes. Yeah, but this is also a really cheap movie. This is made for, like, a million dollars when all is said and done. Like, Craven had written the screenplay inspired by some L.A. Times stories about Hmong refugees from Vietnam who, like, apparently had these really disturbing nightmares that were so bad they refused to sleep, and some of them died based on that. He also 
says that he was inspired by the song Dreamweaver. He's such a weirdo. But I believe he can get me through the night. Is this our only other Wes Craven besides a red eye? Uh, no, we also did Dracula 2000. Oh my god, of course, how could I forget? Yeah, you forgot that Dracula was Judas Iscariot? I forgot that Wes Craven made that movie. So he makes the movie, he like writes it, he shops it around to basically all the studios. Pretty much all of them turn him down. Uh, Disney was interested, but said it would have to be PG-13. This, for Disney, would be around the same time as stuff like Return to Oz and the Black Cauldron. This just wouldn't work in PG-13. It would be much less interesting. We need Tina's bloody corpse flying through the room. But you could imagine, like, in the wake of Poltergeist, people thinking, like, you can make a movie that is spooky, but does not have to be rated R. Right. But this one wasn't it. Poltergeist is a PG that helps lead to the creation of PG-13. Yeah, I guess the newness, they were probably looking for PG-13 movies, too. Yeah. Universal sends him a rejection being like, nobody was passionate about it. But when, it, when it's done, let us know and maybe we'll be willing to take it on at a loss. Eventually, New Line picks it up, which is notable because at that point, New Line Cinema is just a distributor. And they're like trying to get into producing movies. They actually don't have the financing themselves. They, like, organize pulling together financing. Like, a lot of it comes from some Yugoslav millionaire who, like, wants to get his girlfriend in movies down the road. That's kind of like how movies are made now, isn't it? A little bit, honestly. (laughs) Like, you get a lot of production cards at the openings of movies. Yeah. But, like, New Line then for ages has this reputation as the house that Freddy built. Because, like, money from the Nightmare on Elm Street movies is what turned them into an actual studio and now they're not an actual studio they're like a shingle at warner brothers yeah but their uh production of the lord of the rings definitely made an impact on the world oh absolutely yeah we said uh robert england is cast as freddy krueger who is named after wes craven's childhood bully incredible england was kind of a deviation originally they wanted like a big guy but they couldn't find one they liked and so they went with robert england which is great Heather Langenkamp won out on playing the lead, playing Nancy. Fun fact about Heather Langenkamp, she has been an L.A. area DJ for like 15 years. She's a radio DJ now. And she and her husband run a special effects makeup company. That's so cool. (laughs) She seems like the coolest lady. She just like has a life. I'm into it. Yeah. This is also the screen debut of Johnny Depp, whose headshot was supposedly picked out by Wes Craven's daughter. The part had originally been offered to Charlie Sheen. Most reports say that Sheen asked for more money than they could afford. Charlie Sheen says that wasn't the case and that he just hadn't understood the script and like couldn't figure out why Freddy Krueger would be scary, which he has later admitted like, yeah, Freddy Krueger, obviously scary. It is unfortunate to see Johnny Depp in this movie. The biggest knock against it when I watch it. (laughs) It is the biggest knock. He does die. He does. It's kind of... It's satisfying to see Johnny Depp get exploded into a puddle of blood. He's just not a good person. He is not a good person. But the movie was a a big hit. Helped make New Line Cinema. Despite never, like, being the biggest box office sensation. Like, it opened in 10th on November 9th, 1984. Already, red flag. Why is this opening November 9th? Why is this opening November 9th? (laughs) Right? Like, what's going on there? That is weird. In its original run, it, like, peaked at sixth place at the box office. But it just becomes this word-of-mouth thing. It's a big hit on video. And so, over the course of its long box office run, 
and like re-releases and stuff, it makes $25 million at the box office and a ton more in video rentals and sales and, of course, sequels and spinoffs. So it's a huge movie, and uh, it's added to the National Film Registry in 2021, which is super cool, and they used 500 gallons of fake blood to make it. This movie rocks. It's got a great poster. I loved it. I had a blast. I, like, I think Halloween is a better movie, but if I was, like, chatting with my students about scary movies, this is the one that I would recommend to them. Like, this is the one that I would tell teenagers. Like, if you want to be kind of scared as teens, Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah, it is. I I agree with that. And it is the most fun, I would say. Because, I mean, like, Friday the 13th is just, like, a weird movie. It's a little dull. It's a little dull. This one definitely has more oomph to it. And there's just, like, Freddy. Freddy has almost, like, a David Pumpkins quality to him. Like, there's the moment where Nancy sees him and she says, who are you? And... Freddy just smiles and then slices his face open and a worm crawls out. And then it cuts away like we're supposed to have understood that. Yeah, I got it. He's a bad dude. A bad dude right, with a dude. It is like a David Pumpkins moment. He's just a rude talking dude with a bad attitude who has a worm living in his face. It'd be funny if it was just the one worm, right? Like he's not full of worms and bugs. He just has one that lives in his cheek. Right. Like it Ratatouille. Will... He'll crawl back in later. Have you read about A New Nightmare? That's the one I want to watch next. I find it the most interesting. That one's like the meta one, right? Yeah. The Scream 3 of the Nightmare franchise? I think so. I haven't seen Scream 3. I have only seen the Scream Lega sequels. I've seen Scream 5 and 6. Well, you watch Scary Movie 1, which is shockingly close to the movie Scream. So Nightmare on Elm Street 2 is the gay one. So I'm interested in that one. That's Freddy's Revenge. Freddy's Revenge. And then A New Nightmare is the one where Heather Langenkamp plays herself, and she is haunted by Freddy Krueger, who has escaped from the world of fiction. Weird. And it got, like, good reviews. Huh. I know everybody loves Dream Warriors. Yeah. But, yeah, I I gotta watch some more of these. It's actually kind of striking. You know, you mentioned how many of these movies there have been. There has not been a Nightmare movie since 2010. And I'm not saying there should be, but it feels notable. Yeah, I feel like this one doesn't need to be rebooted, and I think the attempt didn't go great for them when they tried. Yeah. Oh, apparently what was going on was they like were tossing stuff around in the 2010s, but New Line was all in on the Conjuring universe, so they didn't have room for it. The Conjuring universe still currently in theaters with The Nun 2. The Nun 2. Back in the habit. <laughs> they should have given it that subtitle. <laughs> I don't think that whoever owns... The rights to um, Sister Act would be very thrilled by that. I think those are Touchstone movies. Yeah, so I would imagine not. Yeah, I don't see how well. I don't I don't see that going over too well, but it would be very funny. Huh, I'm now looking into the Cudring universe. I thought the Curse of La Llorona was a part of that, but apparently not. No, I think that just has the same, like, graphic design. Oh, it looks like maybe it's got, like, some similar creative team, but is not... It's, like, produced by James Wan, but it's not in continuity with the Conjuring films. So, A Nightmare on Elm Street, do you know who wins in Jason vs. Freddy? I'm now kind of curious to watch um, that movie. Yeah, because they're both basically immortal. Right. Like, by the end of both of their movies, they have each come back from the dead at least once. Because this one, I will say, is, like, a very interesting end. Here's what I don't know. Who made... Friday the 13th. What studio is that? 
Because, like, is this is this a case like Roger Rabbit where Mickey Mouse and Bugs Bunny had to have, like, exactly the same number of lines? Like, neither one of them could exactly win? Is it like a Vin Diesel, The Rock situation? Neither of them can lose a fight? So, Paramount had it originally, but it was sold to New Line. Oh, okay. So, they, so that's all New Line, then. So yeah. So they can, like, win. Right. Like, I just saw uh, Alien vs. Predator for no reason. And in that one, like, it's a definitive Predator victory. I see that. But that one adds, like, a bunch of stupid lore about, like, it being, like, a rite of passage for Predators to murder aliens. And it's also, like, an ancient aliens movie where, like, Southeast Asian and Mesoamerican and Egyptian pyramids are all based on Predator pyramids? That have mixtures of all three. Gross. I'm on the Wikipedia summary. It says, Jason is the one who emerges at the end, holding Freddy's severed head. But Freddy winks and laughs. That tracks. So I I guess Jason kind of wins. He has a body. I think having a body is nice. Yeah, Freddy doesn't really need one, though. I don't think. If any of them could survive as just a spooky head. Yeah, I just don't think that biting is going to be the most satisfying way for him to kill people. Like, what's he going to do? Gnaw their skin open? No, he just has a knife for hair. If you're just a severed head, you don't have a lot of leverage to tear with with your teeth. I think he could figure it out. I just also mean, like, in the dream world, he will then still probably have a body. I mean, yes, that's probably true. Every time I look at the list of Friday the 13th movies and see that there's one called Jason Takes Manhattan, I laugh really hard. It's very funny. By the time this episode comes out, I should have my Muppets Take Manhattan 4K disc, which is getting released. But yes, the romance of Friday the 13th, or excuse me, the romance of A Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah, there is a lot of it because this is a teen slasher movie from the 1980s. So it's about people who kiss and then die. And maybe do a bit more than kiss, hence the die. Ooh. But actually, it's more unclear in this one. Every week. Well, some of it's clear. Yeah. So, Mark... Every week, we break down the romantic plotline of a movie into five points. So why don't you take us to point number one of A Nightmare on Elm Street? So point one is our introduction to Rod and Tina, and then Glenn and Nancy, the two couples that appear in this movie, one of which, well, I guess three of which serve as inciting incidents by dying, but then Rod and Tina is clearly the B team. They're introduced as the A team, and they both die. Yes, which is cool. But the movie starts with Tina waking up from a nightmare, but her nightgown has been slashed in real life. In the same place where Fred Krueger slashed her in in her dream. So we cut to school, and here we see Glenn and Nancy are walking along, the normal couple, and then Tina is walking along, and then Rod shows up. And Rod and Tina seem to, like, not like each other, but are dating. She's, like, talking about dreams and, like, waking up weird. Rod immediately is like... Yeah, I woke up with a hard-on with your name on it. And then she says, I'm surprised you could get all four letters on it. It's like, yeah, I was surprised. The first time I watched it, I was surprised when they were seeming to actually be a couple. When he's introduced, he seems like just like an annoying boy. And then the next time he shows up, he seems menacing. And then somewhere it's like, oh, they're dating? Right. And that is point two, where Tina is scared from her nightmare and asks Nancy to have a sleepover, which Glenn is shows up to and they're hanging out and then Rod shows up. Your mom ain't home, is she? Me and Tina got stuff to discuss. 
Rod. We got our mother's bed. You guys got the rest. I think we should get out of here. Hey, you guys are going to hang around, right? I mean, don't leave me alone with this lunatic. Please, Nancy. <laughs> And again, Rod shows up in a creepy, kind of menacing way. He's like knocking on the back door, standing in the shadows. When Nancy and Glenn come out, he's like, Tina and I have stuff to discuss in her mom's bed. Right, because her parents, Tina's parents are out of town. But he's clearly like, I'm here to bang. (laughs) Yes, which they do. Yeah, but like, she seems very hazy about it. She asks the others to stay. Like, it's not clear how much she wants this in a way that's kind of uncomfortable. I don't understand their relationship at all glenn and nancy it is kind of funny then when like they have like comically vigorous sex like you can hear them screaming across the house and then it cuts to the two of them in bed afterwards and she says i knew there was something about you i liked and clearly it's just like he's good at sex and she's like i'll put up with the rest of it you know you gotta do what you gotta do he's bad at sex and they're teenagers well, as long as she's having fun. I guess so. But yes, I do want to shout out the moment during the sleepover where they use a boombox to try and fool Glenn's parents into saying where he is to not admit that he was at a sleepover with girls. Extremely funny that he has a tape with recorded sound effects, like a bunch of different ones. And so clearly, whenever he needs to do this, he has to like patiently like rewind or fast forward to the relevant sound effects. And then the wrong one comes out, obviously, and he has to just power through, like, when the guns start. Well, they do it on purpose. The girls mess with the tape. Yeah, because they're silly, and they're just having a good time. Until, of course, uh, Tina is murdered in her sleep, and the Rod and Tina love story is abruptly ended. We should mention that, like, after Rod and Tina go away, Glenn tries to make out with Nancy, and she's like, no, like, we're supposed to be on the lookout for Nancy. Sorry, for Tina. For Tina. Nancy takes her duties seriously in all aspects yeah. of life, except maybe school. But that's understandable. Her best friend was just brutally murdered and her other friend was arrested for the crime. Yeah, there's blood on the ceiling. But yes, yeah, so Rod is arrested. Glenn and Nancy don't believe in his guilt. Like, it makes sense that Rod runs away just from the horror of watching his girlfriend's body Fly all over the room, spurting blood. Yeah, Rod was creepy, but he got a rough deal in having to witness that. So this kind of brings us to point three, where we switch to just Nancy and Glenn and their attempts to figure out what's going on. Nancy is trying to help Rod get out of prison. She's realizing that she's not sleeping well. And then when she does, she's haunted. So she's figured out that sleep is the problem. And then she asks Glenn to watch her sleep and wake her up if things start going bad. I've got a crazy favor to ask you. Uh-oh. It's nothing hard or anything. I'm going to go and look for somebody. And I want you to stand like a, a sort of a guard, okay? Okay? Okay. Now you can't mess up. A lot might depend on this. I won't screw up. Okay, turn off the light. Okay, here's what we're gonna do. It's dark in here. And it's not what you're thinking. And Glenn is a dum-dum. 
and he falls asleep, so he does a bad job of protecting her from Mr. Frederick Krueger. Which she's not happy about. No, reasonably. She could have died. Nancy has to do all of the work by herself in this movie. No one helps Nancy. Even at the end, which we'll get to, I guess it doesn't really have to do with the romance, so we probably, like, we wouldn't talk about it. But at the end, when she has trapped Freddy in the house and is, like, screaming bloody murder and breaking windows and then shaking the bars on their windows to get her dad's attention. And the other guy, I think he's another cop across the street, is just like, yeah, hmm, maybe we should look into this. And it takes like 10 minutes for them to send someone over. She's screaming her head off. It is also funny, like all the lengths Nancy goes to in order to avoid falling asleep. Like, there's one scene where Nancy's mom comes into the room to check on her and then leaves. And Nancy pulls a full plugged-in coffee maker out from under her bed. It's one of my favorite shots in the movie. Cause, it's like, so wacky. The idea that her mom couldn't smell the fully brewed pot of coffee. Smell it! She also gets sent to a sleep study because she's not sleeping. And right. the results are uh, confusing. Because she is being hunted in her dreams. Right around this point in the movie, also, like, Rod is killed by Freddy Krueger. Freddy Krueger ties him up in the sheets in the jail cell and then hangs him. And I just want to shout out the absolute brutality of the priest at Rod's funeral, whose sermon is all about, if you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. Oh my god, I forgot about that. He doesn't quite say Rod had it coming, but he certainly implies it. Yeah, the priest is just like, eh, this guy deserved it. Let's move on with our lives. This child. Oh my god. Especially that degree of it in a town where vigilante parents all banded together. Yeah, I think that priest was involved. Yeah. What I want to know is, did they all take different parts of Freddy Krueger, right? So like Nancy's mom has the glove. Does somebody else have the hat? What about the sweater? I feel like Nancy's mom is the weirdest person, so she might be the only one with the souvenir. That's possible. But, so, Glenn's usefulness comes to a head in the next point, uh, which I've labeled blood explosion. (laughs) Because Nancy has figured out what's going on. She pulled Freddy's hat from the dream world into the real world. That's how she figures out who he is, because his name is on the inside of the hat. And so she has now rigged a scheme to capture Freddy Krueger in the real world by falling asleep, grabbing him, and so that in 10 minutes, Glenn will wake her up and she will pull Freddy out of the dream to attack in real life. Right, Glenn is supposed to call her, I think? Yeah, Glenn's supposed to call. She calls Glenn, but his parents are like, she's she's no good for him, and then take the phone off the hook so she can't call. Glenn is attempting to stay awake by listening to music and TV at the same time. Shockingly, this does not work, and he falls asleep. And this is where we get <laughs> the body of Johnny Depp sinking into the bed and just a disgusting amount of blood shooting at the ceiling. It's so cool. It's the blood geyser. It's like more blood than a person has. It's by like several degrees. Maybe my favorite death in any horror movie I can think of right now. It's so good. Because it's so creepy and yet so elevated where just the amount of blood brings it to another level of comedy. 
it's like exultant. And at the same time this is going on, Nancy is trying to call to get in touch with Glenn. And when she gets on the phone, she hears Freddie going, I'm your boyfriend now, Nancy. And a little tongue sticks out of the phone and waggles on her mouth. I forgot about the creepy phone tongue. It's a little tongue. It's so good. So Nancy does manage to wake up, pull Freddie into the real world, use her home alone traps to bring him to the basement, set him on fire. I assume he was a little bit alarmed by the fact that in the basement, there is a tapestry of dogs playing poker. That probably got him a little off his game, which made him easier to kill. (laughs) Right. But he doesn't actually die when he's set on fire. He goes upstairs, leaving flaming footprints behind him. Cool. Cool. So that when Nancy finally gets her dad to come into the house, they go upstairs and find Freddy attacking her mom in bed on fire. Less cool. They are both on fire. Nancy's dad throws a sheet over them to try and put it out. When the sheet is pulled up, you just see the bloody corpse of Nancy's mom, who also then sinks into hell. Yep. Real quick, Nancy then, you know, gets rid of Freddy by showing that she doesn't fear him anymore and she has power over him. And we get to point five, which is the nightmare is over. Nancy opens the door. It was night. Now it is daytime. Her dead mom walks out the door and says, you know what? I'm going to stop drinking. And most importantly for the romance, who should pull up but Glenn in a convertible with Tina and Rod? Yay! Happily ever after. (laughs) Except as soon as Nancy gets in the car, the convertible lid closes, the doors lock, and they drive away without controlling the car. And the convertible lid is colored and striped like Freddy's sweater. Right. And then creepy little girls play double dutch and sing about Freddy Krueger in a creepy tone. So, Will. (laughs) All right, Mark. So, do you find the romance of A Nightmare on Elm Street believable? Um, honestly, yes. Because they are teenagers. Right. It's like horny teens who, like, if you look at Nancy and Glenn, like, try to support each other but are bad at it in ways that teens are bad. Nancy and Rod have a bad relationship held together through the excitement of having sex. It really, like, it's honestly one of the more believable movies we've watched. I could call this a 9 out of 10. I could call this a 9. Because, like, what, like... One, we get maybe two days, three days of these relationships. But also, if the main problem with Glenn is that he falls asleep as a teenage boy, having been a teenager, yeah, I believe it. I also, too, did fall asleep at inappropriate times. Yeah. And again, like, the idea that Rod and Tina would, like, keep coming back to each other, like, for sex at that point in their lives, like, kind of makes sense. Yeah. Also agreed. Um, if you were a teen, would you think any of these teens is dateable? I feel like Nancy for sure, and Glenn maybe. Right? Glenn seems like perfectly fine. Glenn is the most milk toast of boyfriends, but he seems like generally nice. Yeah, he's like horny, but not. He's like horny, but not in an aggressive way. The way Rod is, like he wants to make out, but like when Nancy says no, he's like fine. Right. The main thing is just like. Nancy has to do everything. Well, because he's dumb. Because he's dumb. So I think Nancy's a yes. everything he, every clever idea Glenn has is like a dumb person's clever idea, right? Like having the boom box with the sound effects. Right. So for me, Glenn's a no. Tina, yeah. I have no strong opinion on Tina. Tina, no strong opinion. Rod, no. So 
Nobody's going to stay together. Everybody's dead. Nancy's the only one who's alive at the end of this movie. Right. And even she's now questionable because she's stuck in the dream world. So if you had to pick one person in a nightmare on Elm Street to date, whom would you choose? I think I'm going to go with the teacher who seems too young to have participated in the vigilante murder. The posse. The posse. And when Nancy falls asleep in class and has a nightmare, she doesn't react with judgment. She reacts with kindness and is just like, I understand you're going through a tough time. You should probably just head home. Coming back to school now is too early. Yeah, your friend was brutally killed yesterday. And I think the only reason she says the hall pass thing is because of the creepy hall pass in the dream. Yeah. So I'm going with the teacher. Yeah, I think the teacher's the correct answer. Nancy, if you're a teen, is a great pick. Yeah. Uh, Will, should there be a Nightmare on Elm Street stage musical? I'm curious what you think. That's how this usually goes. I was kind of hoping you would ask, uh, answer first. I think of any of the, like, classic slasher movies that could be turned into a musical, I think a Nightmare on Elm Street is the one that would be the most fun. Yeah, I think, like, the challenge of doing a slasher musical is... I think it would be difficult to do it without turning it into a comedy. And, like, this movie, for example, has funny elements, but it's not a comedy. And I was going to say, like, if you were to do this, it would become a horror comedy. Like, a straight horror comedy. Yeah. Which, it's not a bad thing. It wouldn't be no, the same No, there was a thing. musical parody at a theater in Portland in 2019 and again in 2021 that, like, really appears to be, frankly from what I read, kind of a lowest common denominator parody of it, where it's making jokes like, the actors are too old, and why aren't you running away? Ugh, gross. Kind of like, have have something new to bring to the table <laughs> Yeah, here. like, we've all seen Scream. Right. But, yeah, I mean, what what's exciting to me about this movie is the special effects. So, to me, what's exciting about it is the opportunity that's brought by cinema as a medium, specifically, more than the story itself. I do think, like, it's a no. I don't think they should. Like, I don't think it would be good. But I do think if you had to choose a classic slasher to turn into a musical, probably the only choice is A Nightmare on Elm Street. Now, Texas Chainsaw is an opera. I haven't seen that one yet. That's but got, like, that the epic sounds right. Sense. Yeah. All right, well, speaking of epics, <laughs> we should talk about next week, and you should talk about next week, because I have not seen it. Next week... We will be discussing a movie that I currently have not rewatched since high school, but holds a very special place in my heart as one of the first movies that I was sought out because it was so bad it was good. It is a blatant Star Wars ripoff from the early 80s that, for some reason... It's called Argo. Le- <laughs> yeah, starring Ben Affleck. <laughs> well, no, the movie in a movie that they're making that's called Argo is explicitly a Star Wars ripoff. Is it really? I haven't actually seen Argo yeah. yet. Argo's kind of good. No, this one is instead called Crawl, and Liam Neeson has a part in it, so I did, I'd forgotten about I did that not part. Know that. All right, well, until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe, especially on Apple and Spotify. It helps other people find the show. All right, last question, Mark. What is the best piece of dating advice you got from a nightmare? On Elm Street, parentheses, 1984. If your partner asks you to help them with something, you should put a lot of, you should put effort into accomplishing what they ask you to do, 
or else you might explode in a puddle of more blood that exists inside your body. I was going to say the same thing. I was going to say, if your partner asks you to stay awake for something, it's probably important that you should stay awake. Because you might explode into a puddle of more blood than is in your body. A geyser. A geyser. A blood geyser. All right, well, there you go. Until next time, I am a ginger. And I'm gay. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye. Happy Halloween. Woo.